0: All right, well, uh, if you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. You're welcome here. Uh, We hope that you experience Jesus here and enjoy your time with us. We study the Bible. We teach the Bible. We preach the Bible. So we're going to do that now. So if you have one with you, open up to the book of Matthew. We're moving through the book of Matthew systematically, and we're in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And the title of this message is, When Jesus Complains. You like that one? A little giggle there? You didn't think you did, huh? Wait till you see what he complains about. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to dip into chapter 10, but we'll just read the last few verses of chapter 9 for now. We'll read verses 35 through 38 together. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. So it says in Matthew nine thirty-five, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, harvest field. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus says, your followers, as your church this morning, it is our joy to put ourselves under the authority of your word. We thank you for your word. It's authority. It's truth. It's inerrancy. Thank you that it's powerful and living and active. So because it's your word, we happily place ourselves under its authority, and we ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to think about our lives in light of your truth, in light of your word, your call upon us, your will, your plan, your mission, your glory, what you're doing in our world, in us, through us, around us. Help us to think about our lives in light of what your word says, and Jesus, who you are. So give us understanding now as we look into your word. Give us ears to hear. Cause us to have hearts that would want to obey you, follow you, live for your glory. Please help me to teach and preach by the Holy Spirit in a way that's faithful and helpful and bears fruit for your purposes. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you ever wonder why there aren't more Christians? Do you ever just think about that as you look around our community, uh, your school, your workplace, your family? Did you ever wonder why there's not more Christians? I mean, after all, the good news is really, really good. It's really good news that Jesus loves us and came to give his life for us, died on a cross that we might have the forgiveness of sins, rose from the dead, and is coming again to establish his kingdom. It's like really good news. So don't you wonder why more people don't respond to it and say, yeah, I, I want to follow Jesus. It is really good news, but, but it is also offensive to some degree, this news about Jesus. I mean, after all, the, the good news is predicated upon the fact of some bad news that we are all sinners, that God has a holy and righteous standard, and we have all together, humanity, have violated that standard, and we owe a debt to God. And it calls us to repent. It calls us to be willing to turn from our sins and turn toward God. And it asks us to be willing to forsake certain things. And there is in that message also the idea of judgment, that God is gonna judge the world. These are offensive ideas, really. And then there's a whole thing about exclusivity. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. Jesus claims in a world of a lot of competing truth claims to be the only way to heaven. It's offensive. Maybe that's the reason why more people aren't Christians. Because there's real objections. Maybe that's the problem. Or maybe it's a belief issue. I mean, scripture is asking people to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that that somehow satisfied the debt that was owed to God and God's wrath and that he rose from the dead on the third day, ascended unto high, is seated in glory and is coming back again to establish his kingdom. It's like otherworldly stuff. Maybe it's a belief issue. Maybe that's why more people aren't Christians. Well, in our text, Jesus tells us that none of those things Are the problem. He says the harvest is actually plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus seems to say in our text the problem is not that people aren't willing to become Christians, the problem is that Christians aren't willing to become workers. Workers, you know. In the world, representing Jesus, doing the stuff Jesus did. Proclaiming the message Jesus proclaimed. Working the work of Jesus. Jesus seems to say on our text, the problem is not that people aren't willing to become Christians, it's that Christians aren't willing to become workers. Doing Jesus stuff on earth, proclaiming the message that he proclaimed everywhere, not just over there, but here. As who we are, where we live, amongst whom we know, in the midst of what we do. Why does this matter? Why does it matter, becoming workers? Well, it matters because of what verse 36 said. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I, I want to highlight a couple words for you. Harassed and helpless. Jesus looked upon the crowds. He said that they were harassed and helpless and that caused him to have another key word, compassion on them. Jesus looked out on the mass of humanity, saw them, saw us to be harassed and helpless and he had compassion. This is why there is mission. This is why there's a work to be done. Because when God looks at the world he has this compassion that moves him. The Greek word speaks of, uh, of movement. The Greek word translated compassion there means to feel in the guts. You know what that's like? You ever been like heartbroken? And there's actually this like feeling in here, right? Or like, oh man, it made me just sick to my stomach. I was so grieved by it. Like to feel in the guts. Jesus looked at humanity, their harassed and helpless state, and he felt the pain of that in his very being, in his guts. Our word compassion that we get from the Latin word, the Latin phrase, come and passion with suffering. Suffer with. The word compassion means to suffer with. There's a verse from the prophet Isaiah talking about Israel and their wanderings. And it says, in all of their suffering, God suffered with them. Our God is a God who feels our pain. Christ saw the state of the people when he looks upon humanity. He he suffers with us and that he feels our pain in his guts. has compassion. And this answers for us that question that we all ask from time to time. This one, does God really care? You know, there are times in our own lives that are so dark, so painful. It's hard for us to reconcile loving God and we ask the question very naturally, does God really care? There are situations in our world that are so destructive, so unjust, so perverse. We find ourselves asking the question, does God care? And though we don't have all the answers, we have this one. He cares deeply. Jesus looks upon the harassed, helpless state of humanity. We know what that is. And he feels deeply their pain. There is mission, God's mission. God is a missionary God. There is work, work to be done because of God's great compassion for people. Compassion because he loves us. He's deeply concerned about our oppression, our depression, our suppression. And I want you to notice that this this thing that's going on here, this mission of God, this work that is to be done, it's not motivated by God's disgust because we're sinners, Rather, it is motivated by his compassion because we're sufferers. See what the text is telling us? God's work is not motivated by his disgust with sinners, but rather by his compassion for sufferers. It is true that humanity is bad and deserving the wrath of God. That we are sinners who have rebelled against the holy God. But the motive revealed in the text for what Jesus is doing and calling us to wasn't a motive from disgust about sinners, but rather compassion for sufferers. So as we think about this in our lives, we realize that Christian work is not first. Okay? Mission, Christian work is not first an endeavor to tell the world how bad they are. It is rather to show the world how loved they are. For after all, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say because God was so mad at the world. There is an essence of anger to how God views sin, but the text says, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. It is not a motive of because God is so mad. It is a motive because God so loves So our approach then is the approach of Jesus, not of judgment first, but of compassion. When he looked at the people, he saw they were harassed and helpless. It doesn't say that he looked at them and said they were dirty and rotten. Though they may have been, and we certainly are in our sin. Harassed and helpless is the idea. So we see texts about the life and mission of Jesus, such as Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You, you, it only matters if something is lost if you care deeply about it. Like Mark 10.45, Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You only give your life because of radical love. And then I know you know John 3.16, but do you know the verse that comes after John 3.17? says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So sin is not the source of God's mission or what God is doing in the world or what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. Rather, God's love and compassion is. Sin is not the source of mission. In other words, our sin, our rebellion against God that started in the garden did not obligate God. God didn't look and just say, oh man, they sinned, this is a mess. Now I gotta go clean that up, thanks a lot. Our sin didn't obligate God to anything. God is being faithful to his overwhelming love and compassion towards sinful people. That's the source of mission. So the text says again, verse 36, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. There is the key problem. Like sheep without a shepherd. The prophet Isaiah once again said this in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's what happened in the garden, in the rebellion. That's what happens in our lives, in our own rebellion. That's the state and the condition of humanity, like sheep without a shepherd. The real problem is that we were created to have a loving shepherd, And we, like sheep, have gone astray in rebellion from that shepherd. Now, the metaphor of sheep that's used for humanity and for God's people in the scriptures is a telling one. Because sheep don't do well without a shepherd. When sheep wander off on their own, sheep begin to become harassed through predators, through, uh, uh, what are those little things called? Parasites, through peril, through other pee things. Sheep become harassed. They're dumb little fluffy cute animals. (laughs) And they need a shepherd. And so the work is, and what Jesus is doing in the incarnation and coming in the gospels and what we're calling people to and what our lives are meant to be are a return to the shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray and sheep don't do well astray. They become harassed and helpless. But there is a shepherd. That's why Jesus steps into that metaphor in his incarnation and says, I am the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd, the shepherd of our souls, who saves us from our harassed and helpless state. Now, why why are we, why is humanity harassed and helpless? Well, the issue here is indeed sin. Now, I want you to think about sin in two ways for a moment. Sin is for sure an offense to or offense against a holy God. It is an offense against a holy God. That is true. But it is also an offense against holy intention. That is, God intended that humanity would flourish in the context of his presence and his love and his shepherding. Sin is an offense against a holy God and we incur a debt and we deserve judgment. But it is also an offense against holy intent that we would flourish under his shepherding, his love, his presence, and his care. And rebellion is going astray, leaving and abandoning that. And so then what we begin to experience, what causes humanity to be harassed and helpless is the effects then of sin. We become harassed by the effects of sin, our own immediate sin, the sin of those around us whose lives affect us, the cumulative sin in a culture, in a world present and historical. And we find ourselves helpless against these cumulative effects. We find ourselves helpless in the face of death, helpless in the face of disease, helpless in the face of all sorts of destruction that we see in the world. And apart from Jesus, we find ourselves to be helpless in the face of the devil. The devil is the harasser. Humanity is the harassed. And sin is the devil's ring, the devil's playground. Righteousness is God's ring, God's playground. This is where we're meant to live and play and be. But sin brings us into the devil's realm. And there we find ourselves suffering under the harasser and the effects of sin to such a degree that we are, as the text said, helpless. We can't save ourselves, humanity, from the power of sin. We can't save ourselves from the penalty of sin. And no matter how much we advance, no matter how much technology we employ, no matter how refined we become, we find that we cannot save ourselves even from the presence of sin. So we need one who is greater than us, a power outside of ourselves. We need Jesus, the good shepherd, to deliver us from the power penalty and ultimately even the presence of sin. And only Jesus can do this. There's that offensive claim of exclusivity. Only Jesus saves us from our harassed and helpless state. But there's something interesting happening here in the text now. Chapters 8 and 9 have been telling us that Jesus can do anything. That's kind of the main point of chapters 8 and 9 that we've been studying, that Jesus could do anything. Right? Chapter 8 starts with Jesus touching a leper, and the leper is healed. And then we see him healing many people. And then we see that Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples and there's this overwhelming storm and it's starting to sink the boat and it's threatening the disciples' life. And with a word, Jesus calms the wind and the waves and it becomes perfectly calm. And then they get to the other side and there's these two dudes who are demonized and they were cutting themselves and beating up other people. And with the word, Jesus sets them free from the power of the devil. And the father comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is dead. And with a word, Jesus raises her from the dead. And he opens the eyes of the blind. And the mute begin to speak. You see, Matthew 8 and 9 are telling us that Jesus can do anything. He has absolute authority and power. What is interesting is that he is choosing to do something about the harassed and helpless state of humanity now in this pivotal text, in this movement. He's choosing to do something about their state through his followers. He's choosing, at this point here, that he will work through his people rather than independent of his people. Throughout history, in fact, we've seen that that's what God does. That was actually the intent in the garden, that God would work his work in the world through his people rather than independent of his people. He doesn't need to do that, you know. He was doing just fine by himself, Raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, stopping the storm, setting the tormented free. But he wants to include us in his work. Why does he want to do that? Very important theological point. He does not need us. We have the doctrine of the sufficiency of God. He doesn't need us. So why does he include us? He includes us because of love. Because he loves us. That's what love does. Love includes in one's own passion. It always does. This is why when our kids are growing up, we buy them little skateboards and little dirt bikes and we make them little surfboards because we love them. We draw them into our passions. This is why when you meet someone and you're attracted to them, you look for some common passion that you guys can become enveloped in together and discover more of each other because love is always drawing into one's passions. And because God loves us, he is drawing us into his passion of helping the harassed and the helpless. It's not that he needs us, but he has chosen us for this very thing. Peter said this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That, there's an important phrase, okay? In order, that is the idea. In order that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, the Bible teaches that you are chosen Christians. Before the foundations of the world, God loved you and chose you that you might become His daughter or his son. But the Bible also tells us that He chose us that we might become workers in His work. And this is awesome that God would include us in this passion of His, this, this thing He does this glorious work of saving, that God would include us in that is a wonderful thing. I mean, can you try to capture the feeling of the disciples as they've been journeying through chapter 8 and 9 and they've been watching Jesus touch the leper? Raise the dead, calm the storm, set free the tormented. And here's a spoiler alert now. As we dip into chapter 10 in a minute, they're going to be doing those very same things. Can you imagine their joy as they went from watching to working? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the transition in one's life of following Jesus where we go from watching to working from the sidelines to in the game, from riding the pine to moving the ball down the field, from watching to working. Can you imagine their joy? I mean, they probably never thought as they watched Jesus do these things that they would be involved in such glorious power and authority and redemptive beauty. It's wonderful that God calls us to these things. So if it's so wonderful... Why is it that so few of us transition from watching to working? I mean, that's what Jesus said. I'm not even making that accusation. That's what Jesus said. So the harvest is actually plentiful. It's not an offense issue. It's not a belief issue. It's a work issue. There's not enough workers. Why is it then? If we're called into this glorious partnership with Christ, that so few of us transition from watching to working. Because that does seem to be the case. I mean, when you have like a church, most people do nothing and a few people do a lot of things. I'm glad to know that Jesus had the same problem and it's not just us. (laughs) Why is that though? Don't we want to follow in the footsteps of of the disciples as they're following Christ and, 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 and bridge that gap? So why don't I? Why do I find myself so resistant to being a worker? Why am I so attracted to rather watching? I don't know. I I, I think about my own life. Part of my problem is that I love comfort. Comfortable situations, comfortable things, a comfortable life. And you know, if if we're going to get down and start fooling around with harassed and helpless sheep, that's a messy place. I don't like messy. I'm borderline OCD. I like clean, straight, straight, clean, nice. <laughs> Comfortable. So I don't know, I worry that working more and watching less is gonna bring some sort of discomfort into my life. And I love comfort. I find myself often being like Demas. You know, Paul lost a ministry partner one time. His name was Demas. And he wrote in one of his, of his letters, he said, Demas has abandoned me because he loved this present world too much. see a picture of myself there. In so many ways, I, I love the world too much. The things of the world. I, wa- I, I want to have them. I want to have more of them. Other times I find myself stuck in watching and not working, just out of sheer fear. What's it going to cost me if I do this? What kind of sacrifices am I going to have to make? How messy is this going to get? Other times it's not about fear. I'm not afraid. It's just apathy. I just don't care that much, honestly. I'm content to watch rather than work because I don't care that much. I find that I don't care that much because I am radically self-absorbed. I care mostly about my agenda, how I'm perceived, what I have, and the ways that I'm winning. And on top of it all, I love pleasure. So I, I need to be helped to get across that divide when I hear Jesus' complaint here. It's not that people aren't willing to become Christians. It's that Christians aren't willing to become workers. Why is that? All those reasons in my own life. So I rejoice in finding in the text an invitation. And in the invitation, discovering the secret to overcoming all my objections, my self-absorption, my love of pleasure, my apathy, my fear, my love of the world, and my love of comfort. In the secret... I find the answer to all of my objections. And the secret is verse 38. It's no secret. Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus makes an invitation. Now, pay attention here. I want you to see a very delicate theological interplay going on in this invitation. He's been moved by his compassion, he's voiced a complaint. And now he's issued an invitation. I want you to see the delicate interplay in it. Jesus, in inviting us to ask the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest field, is inviting us to do something, right? And what's, he, what's, he, what's he inviting us to do? Starts with P, thank you, to pray. He's inviting us to pray. He just invited us to pray. Our first steps Into the water of God's work is prayer. The first steps into the water of God's work is prayer. He's invited us to pray. But what's happening when we pray? A lot of things. But a primary thing that happens when we pray is we are expressing and living into our dependence upon and need for God. Otherwise, why pray? Prayer is primarily the expression of the dependence upon and need for God to do something. Jesus is inviting us to pray. It's not that Jesus said, listen, here's the deal, guys. Everyone's harassed and and helpless, and and the the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but there's no workers, so there's just nothing we could do. He didn't say that. Remember the doctrine of the sufficiency of God. He could do everything, but rather than doing everything, he invites us to do something. And yet that something is a request for him to do something. You see what's happening here? He's asking us to do something, which is asking him to do something. Seems like he's up to something. Why doesn't he just do it? I mean, after all, he's the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. Why doesn't he just do it? What does God invite me to do something which is asking him to do something about the problem that he has surmised exists amongst humanity? Because of God's love throughout history, God has chosen to work through his people rather than independent of his people. And what prayer does these first steps into the waters of God's work. What prayer does is exposes us to and involves us in God's passion and his compassion. Prayer is the exposing to and the involving in God's passion. You see, what exposing does and what it requires is an opening of our eyes and our hearts to see, to feel, to understand people and humanity in the way that Christ does. Prayer begins to expose us to the heart of God in some mysterious, real, tangible, transformative way. Prayer is the exposing so that we can start to see the people around us, our community, the world, the way that God sees them. And prayer is also an involving And what involving requires is a reshaping and a redirecting of my passions. A reshaping and a redirecting of my passions. Prayer is that mysterious, powerful place where my passions are reshaped and redirected so that God's passion becomes my passion. So that I start to live out of and feel God's compassion toward the world around me. Jesus is saying in this invitation that these things happen in that mysterious, powerful place of prayer. Exposing to, having our eyes open, our passions redirected. And what kind of sits behind this invitation is is this question that we have to ask of ourselves. Do we see? And do we care? I think the answer is that so often for myself, I don't see and I don't care because I think if I saw people the way Jesus did and I cared about what Jesus cared about, my prayer life would look different than it does. Maybe there are some of you here and God bless you where you're just like, dude, prayer, nailing it. But I don't feel that way about my prayer life. But I think if I saw more clearly, the way God sees people, felt the way God feels about people, I I would pray differently. You know, there's no indication that when Jesus called the disciples, they cared at all about the plight of the people around them. They were just fishing on the Galilee, collecting taxes, woo-hoo. There's no indication. It's not like Jesus went and he's like, oh, dude, here's a guy that really cares. Matthew, come be my guy. It's the opposite. Matthew was a tax collector. There's no indication that they cared, but my hunch is this. As they are walking through Matthew 8 and 9 with Jesus and they're seeing the way that Jesus touches people, the way that he heals and sets free the tormented people, the way that he confronts and overcomes death and distress, I think that as they're watching, they're beginning to care and to feel the way Jesus cares and feels. And so Jesus is inviting them into the waters in the first steps toward vision and compassion. The work of God is prayer. That's what he says to them. This is a pivotal text. He's taking them from watchers to workers. And the first step is Prayer. The problem is, I find, and here's the hard part: the very reason that I don't pray is, as I said, don't pray. Excuse me, is as I said, because I don't really care. I don't see clearly the plight of people. If I did, I would pray more. Honestly, think about it. Here's an example: we have a Tuesday morning prayer meeting, as you know, every week at this church, have for the 13 years of our church. And once a month, it's prayer for the nations. So once a month, we're praying for the unreached in the world and for our missionary workers around the world. We're, we're, at, we're praying this very prayer that God would send workers into the harvest. Once a month we do that. And and once a month we stand up here at this pulpit, whoever is doing announcements, and they announce that. Look, we're praying for the nations this month. We're praying for the unreached. We're praying for the workers that are out there. Come Tuesday morning, we'll do ministry in Africa Tuesday morning through prayer in Indonesia, in the Middle East. And there's this invitation once a month. And guess who comes? Nobody. None of you come. It's the same people that are there every week praying all the time. Why don't you come? Because you don't care. Why don't I pray more? Because I, I don't care. I mean, I think we just got to be honest about that. And the irony is that the first step into caring is praying. That's why Jesus issues this invitation. Listen, I've been preaching for 20 years. I know how to make people feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel bad by saying that. I'm trying to make us think about our lives in light of Christ's invitation. We don't care enough. So what do we do about that? We pray. And that's hard because praying is caring, but we don't care because we don't, we don't pray because we don't care, whatever, you know what I'm saying? So at some point, I have to, at some point, I have to hear Jesus' compassion in the text. I have to hear Jesus' complaint in the text. And I have to choose to obey his call to pray. Like just a grown-up decision. You know when you're a kid and decisions aren't a big deal and then you grow up and you got to make a grown-up decision? This is like a grown-up Christian decision. At some point, I have to see Christ's compassion in the text, hear his complaint in the text, and then obey his invitation to pray as seen in the text. At some point in my Christian development, I have to choose that Christ's agenda is more important than my own agenda. And I have to be convinced of that Weekly almost daily. Again, I've already confessed to you that I am self-absorbed, that I love pleasure, that I love comfort, that I'm enamored with some of the things of the world, that I'm apathetic, and that I just don't care, and sometimes I'm afraid. But at some point, I need to step into the truth of the text and say, Jesus' compassion and complaint and invitation are more important than my own will and agenda for my life. And that's hard stuff. And you know what? Listen very carefully to me now. You can live your whole Christian life and never really get there. I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to challenge what I said. You can live your whole Christian life without ever really getting to that place of surrender where you say, your agenda is bigger than mine, God. Now I'm going to challenge it. But can you? Because what about the issue of lordship? The scriptures don't say confess Jesus as savior. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. It says in Romans 10, 9, you shall confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you shall be saved. We haven't been called into some sort of fire insurance. We've been called into the passionate work of God to rescue the harassed and helpless. And then we enter his kingdom. And to live in his kingdom means to live under the authority and the rule of the king, Jesus as Lord. So maybe you can live your whole Christian life and never really get there where you surrender your will to his, but maybe you can't. What about the issue of lordship? Maybe if you're living your whole Christian life that way, maybe you're not a Christian. Mm. Hard sermon, huh? But even if we could, even if we could live our whole Christian life and never surrender to the Lordship of Jesus in certain areas, don't we know enough? Don't we know enough from what we've read in the scriptures? Don't we know enough to know that even if we could do that, in the end, it's going to have been a lesser life? Don't we know enough? to realize that even if we did never surrender, that it will have been in the final analysis a lesser life than what God has ordained for us? Nobody gets to the end and says, you know what, I served God too much. <laughs> Won't it have been a lesser life? Look very carefully what happens in the next few verses. We'll just read them and close. It says in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any city of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Pause that. That will be expanded later on when he sends them to the whole world. This was just in practicing for their first little mission trip. Verse seven, as you go, he tells them, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. End right there. Just two things I want you to notice about that. Number one, Jesus just made them the answer to their own prayers. Sneaky, sneaky. He pulled a fast one there. He said, hey guys, here's the deal. People are harassed. And helpless, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to pray about it. No big deal. You can do that, right? Just just pray that I would send someone to them. And then he sends them to those people. (laughs) Sneaky, sneaky. You pulled a quick one on him. Here's my fear. I'm afraid that if I begin to wade into the waters of God's work, That he'll pull a fast one on me. And that it will somehow be a lesser life. But the second thing I want you to notice from the text is this the disciples were living a more full life doing that than they ever had before. I mean, what were they doing before? Fishing. And they weren't even good fishermen. Have you ever read the Bible? They never ever caught fish unless Jesus was there. (laughs) Like, dude, I love fishing. I'm a fisherman, but if I'm never catching anything, mm. they were fishing. Now they're seeing the lepers cleansed, the dead raised, the sick healed, the gospel proclaimed. Now they are seen and they're actually doing the same glorious things that Jesus has been doing. They have been gifted and empowered and commissioned. And in doing that, they are living a more full life than they ever did before. I don't think there's any dark argument there. again, We're convinced that if we obey Jesus and pray, he's going to pull a fast one on us and we become the answer to our own prayers and that somehow that will make our life less. You know who first planted that idea that it would make our life less in our minds? was Satan in the garden. It's exactly what he said. Satan is always trying to paint God as a taker who requires more than he gives and that is not our God. Our God is a giver who came to give us life and life abundantly. It's a lie from the pit of hell that if we begin to pray and obey Jesus, that somehow we will regret some of the comforts, self-absorption, pleasures, apathy, and fears that we leave behind. That is not the truth. This is a good life. So I want us to begin to enter into that today now, By praying. We're actually going to obey what Jesus says. Are you cool with that? Okay, listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are welcome to pray with us. You're welcome to listen, whatever you're comfortable with. If you are here and you're a Christian, then you should pray. We ought to like get beyond the point where we feel awkward about praying in church. See how that doesn't make sense? Like my house should be called a house of prayer. We should, When someone says, when you come to church, hey, let's pray, we, we, we should like be okay with that. I know the dynamics. You're getting too shifty. Don't shift yet. There's work to do. I know the dynamics that it can be awkward praying with people and the person you're sitting next to has bad breath and you've been next to them for an hour now. And you, you, you don't have the big words. It's not about the big words and it's not a big prayer. Jesus said this, pray that I would send workers into my own harvest. It's Christ's mission. All ministry is God's ministry. He just says, step into the waters a little bit by asking me to do something. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to ask me to do something. We can do this. Simple prayers. Three ways that we might pray this morning. Just go ahead and put them all up, Jen. We might pray for an individual or a group of individuals. Maybe it's a family member that you have in mind. God, send workers to them. Maybe it's your whole family. Maybe it's a, a coworker. Maybe it's all your coworkers. You might pray for an individual or a group of individuals. You might have a desire to pray for a subculture, right? Maybe it's surfers, maybe it's soccer moms, whatever it is. Pray for a subculture. Lord, send workers to these people who are harassed and helpless and need the good news of Jesus. Maybe it's even a nation or a people group. Or something I haven't thought of. But just We'll just stick within the realm. For now, surrender the idea that he might make you an answer to your own prayer. Just let that go for now. We're not even there. We're just gonna obey the text and ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest in these areas. Is that cool? So we'll just take five minutes, turn toward each other, pray out loud. If that's outside your comfort zone, pray by yourself, that's cool. But let's pray, church. Go ahead, do it. Worship team will come up in a few minutes.